Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Chapter 21. The House Elf Liberation Front. Harry, Ron, and Hermione went up to the Owlery that evening to find Pigwidgeon so that Harry could send Sirius a letter telling him that he had managed to get past his dragon unscathed. On the way, Harry filled Ron in on everything Sirius had told him about Karkaroff. Though shocked at first to hear that Karkaroff had been a Death Eater, by the time they entered the Owlery, Ron was saying that they ought to have suspected it all along. I'm Matt Potts. And I'm Jackson Bird. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Hi, everyone. As you remember, Vanessa is on sabbatical, which is sad for us because we all love Vanessa. But the great news is that we have wonderful, wonderful co-hosts joining us. And this week we have Jackson Bird, who is a YouTube creator, uh, frequent co-host on the show, and the author of the wonderful book, Sorted. Jack, welcome. Thanks. Hi. Thanks for having me. I'm always excited to be back. And in addition to hearing Jack this week, if you want to hear more of Jackson Bird, and we all do, please join us for camp because Jackson's going to be with us at camp this summer. If you'd like to sign up for camp, go to notsireworks.com and book your spot today. Also, please remember to review us on iTunes and subscribe because that helps us out. I'm so excited for camp. Jackson, you have a story about vulnerability this week. I do. I do. Uh, Vulnerability is uh, not something I'm great at. And so it was actually kind of tough to think about a story for this. And I ended up going with the most obvious one for me, which is coming out, because that was a time when I was the most vulnerable. And specifically, the time that I think was just like the peak, most extreme moment of vulnerability in my life was coming out to my mom, which I did in college when I was at her place in New Mexico on winter break. And, um, you know, the actual like moment of it was honestly kind of a blur in my memory, I think, because of just the intense emotions. And I know it took me like two times to try to actually say the words to her. Uh, And then we sort of talked all night and there were like a lot of tears. But the main thing that I remember is I went to bed and the next day I slept in so late, like hours later than I usually do. And I woke up and I was in such 
physical pain. Like I was so sore and I hadn't like worked out or done anything the day before. I just, for some reason, felt like I'd gotten hit by a truck. And I think it was just sort of the release of emotions that I was not used to doing because I'm, I'm just generally kind of a, um, a, a private and buttoned up person. I have a lot of trouble like getting to that point of vulnerability. So on that particular day, I think I was probably awake just long enough to maybe have a little bit of food. And I talked to my mom enough for her to sort of reassure me that like everything was going to be okay. And then I went back to bed for rest of the day. And that always stands out to me because I think that was when I really realized that because I am so not in touch with my emotions a lot of the time, when I actually allow myself or push myself to go there, I get a physical reaction to it. And I, I genuinely feel as if like I just ran a marathon. Like it's it's like soreness and pain, but it's also kind of this release that happens. And yeah, that's something that probably tells me I should exercise vulnerability <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, getting in touch with my emotions more, but is also something I sort of remember when I know I am going to be going into these, these moments of like having hard conversations or, or just being more vulnerable with someone of like, also, mm, I should make sure that I'm sleeping and hydrating a lot because I'm probably going to feel this physically. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks Jackson for sharing that really personal story. I'm grateful to hear it. And also, just to hear you describe sort of the physiological reaction to vulnerability. You know, Brene Brown talks about having a vulnerability hangover, right? Mm. Like, when you make yourself vulnerable to somebody else, you feel it in your body. And I think that's really important because our bodies aren't just things that occasionally have emotions added to them. The emotions happen to our bodies, right? The body is the thing that's having the emotion, that's feeling the emotion. And although we can sometimes spiritualize it or whatever, or, or mentalize it, like, all those hormones and, and everything's rushing through our actual lived material flesh, and it leads to physiological effects, as you as you describe. Which leads me to take us to etymology corner. Yes, this week I love <laughs> because, going to etymology yes, corner. Here we go. <laughs> so the the vul in vulnerability comes from the Latin for wound, mm. right? And you think about wounds as places where we're hurt, right, or places where we might be vulnerable to being hurt. What's interesting though is like it very quickly becomes about an emotional posture, not just a physiological posture, right? Like you can talk about in a battle, as probably the Romans originally did, you can talk about, you know, one side being vulnerable to another's flanking attack or something, right? But that really quickly metaphorizes into like just being vulnerable to others, emotionally vulnerable to others, being able to be hurt by others. That's kind of where this question of vulnerability comes and where the idea of woundedness, I think, circles around the term. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, especially talking about it as... um you know, thinking in, in the battle way of like, this is a, a potential weakness that your yeah. competitors are seeing, because I think vulnerability is thought of as something these days in a lot of circles that you should maybe strive for and you should be more in touch with. Hmm. And so I hadn't even thought about how really the, the word it more often has meant like, not necessarily negative, but yeah, it's, it, it is sort of like a, yeah. a weak point in some ways. I mean, one of the things I think we'll talk about in the chapter with, you know, some of the things I want to bring up from this chapter when we have our theme conversation is that, like, vulnerability is really directly related to power, right? Like, mm. like you're in a position of vulnerability when someone has some kind of power over you, power to, to help you or hurt you or to withhold help from you or something, right? That's, that's kind of how we define vulnerability. And so it's a mixed bag, right? I think mm -hmm. folks like Brene Brown and others who I really respect and admire do call us to kind of courageously go into that space of vulnerability. But it's a space of vulnerability. It's a place where people can hurt us, right? And that, that means you have to enter that space 
with some trepidation and some stress, which is exactly as your t- story described, right? Like, I mean, I don't, I don't know your relationship with your mom, Jackson, but like, it sounds like you love her. She loves you. You went into this conversation, but also unsure and knowing that if the conversation went away, you hoped it wouldn't, that you both might be hurt, right? And that's why your body had a stress response. That's why you felt exhausted afterwards, because you knew you were entering this space where you were vulnerable, where, where you could get hurt pretty deeply. Yeah, I I like thinking about it with that um, sort of power structure element brought in because then, yeah, the stress reaction, which to me can remind me a lot of fear. And so I want to try to keep that in mind as we get into the chapter and think about like, yeah, the, the, the power with vulnerability and then the fear element that comes in there, which is really interesting to me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you'll notice that I'm trying to skip ahead of the theme conversation because I'm avoiding being vulnerable to a 30 second recap, <laughs> but, but, but we probably should, we probably should do our 30 seconds. So as a courtesy to you, our guest, I'm going to go first. Oh, how generous. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Would you be so kind as to count me in? Uh, yeah. All right. Ready? Yep. Three, two, one. So they're going up to the place where the owls are, and they uh, write a letter to Sirius, and they give it to Pigwidgeon, and Pigwidgeon tries to fly away, and he flies away. And then they go uh, to, uh, where do they go next? Oh, they go back to the common room, and there's a big feast, and then they open up the egg, and the egg makes a terrible noise, and Neville is traumatized because he's traumatized. And then um, and then they go see the Hagrid, and there are blast-ended scroots, and the scroots are killing each other, and Rita Skeeter comes by, and Rita has bad intentions, and they try to protect Hagrid. And then Hermione takes them down to the kitchens, and Dobby is there, and Winky is there, and Winky's very upset, and Dobby uh, is getting paid, and that's the nice. I felt like there was one more thing I needed to say that I might have tried to squeeze in with an extra second, but I can't remember. I feel like I missed something important. I feel like you said everything I was going to say, but let's see what happens when I actually give it a try. I'm yeah. sure I'll hear it when you go. Okay, I'll count you in, Jack. <laughs> All right. Three, two, one, go. Uh, so Harry has just finished the first task and he wanted to write Sirius to tell him all about it and him and Ron are friends again and that's great and they go and the Gryffindors celebrate them and he opens up the egg and no one knows what the screaming means but Neville is very scared by it and then December continues on and they're back to classes and they're at uh, Hagrid's and he's very flustered with blast and Scroots and then Rita is there and seems like she's going to have this interview with Hagrid that's going to go very very poorly. Uh, they also go to divination <laughs> and then Hermione has found the way to the kitchens through Fred and George and they meet Dobby and Winky and find out what they've been up to and that's basically it. You did great. That's <laughs> I could have gone on right for on, three minutes. <laughs> right on time. So, Jackson, I thought we'd start at the beginning of the chapter because I think there's a moment of maybe vulnerability to be explored here, right? Or, or unrealized vulnerability. You spoke in your story about how, you know, in some cultural conversations in the world today, we're being invited to inhabit our vulnerability a little bit more courageously as long as those situations are safe to kind of enter those vulnerable spaces. And I feel like, you know, we had this lingering vulnerability from the last chapter. In the end of the last chapter, Harry and Ron finally make up, right? And they actually don't say all the vulnerable things, right? Like, Harry doesn't let Ron apologize. And they just try to not have the conversation. Let's just pretend it never happened and move on. And so we begin this chapter, like, in the midst of them trying to, like, be okay and cool again. But there is all this lingering stuff that hasn't really really been worked through. 
What do you think about that? Yeah, I that really stood out to me at the start of this chapter, specifically because we kind of, you know, we get essentially Harry's inner monologue. So we see Ron being almost effusively nice, saying like, oh, Harry, I think you're yeah. going to like win this whole thing. But what we also get is Harry says at one point, Harry knew that Ron was only saying this to make up for his behavior of the last few weeks, but he appreciated it all the same. Yeah. And what I thought was so interesting here was, you know, we're talking about 14-year-old boys. Like the fact that they yeah. weren't vulnerable and didn't say the words is not at all surprising to me. But what is kind of cool is, yeah, right? Like, but what is kind of cool is to get that inside look at like, those emotions actually are there. Like, like they have a very, very deep friendship. They've been through a lot together. And this was a really hard thing for them to sort of go through that rough patch. And so even as a reader, I felt sort of some of that emotional release being like, okay, (laughs) like homeostasis has been restored. They are friends again. uh, And Harry is like happy and content. And yeah, I, I do think it's really interesting though, that like, they sort of went went to the edge of like almost almost getting to that vulnerable point. And they're kind of showing it in their own ways, but they're not quite there. There's also this interesting irony there because you knew you mentioned when you're telling your story about how vulnerability is associated with weakness, right? And it's interesting here. So in the last chapter, Ron and Harry kind of turn away from the moment of vulnerability when there might have been like a more fulsome apology and a more fulsome reconciliation. They just don't want to talk about it. And now here, as an alternative to that, Ron is like saying oh, you're the best, you're the strongest, right? Like, he's trying to cover up any potential weakness. Like, he's, like, saying, oh, you are going to mm. win. And th- that's why, like, you know, when Hermione says, Hermione afterwards is like, well, it's actually pretty hard. He might not win. In fact, he probably won't win. <laughs> and I was like, you're not helping. <laughs> yeah. Because what's going on there, as Harry knows, as you, like, point out in your line reading, like, what's going on there is neither of them is actually listening to the content of the sentence. They're just saying, oh, we're comforting each other. We're taking care of each other. We're trying to, like, mm. get past this in our own 14-year-old boy way, which is avoiding the experience of weakness and talking about strength instead, talking about how great you are and how you probably won't have any struggle, right? It's really a, it's a turning away from vulnerability in that sense. And it continues, right? Like, I think after they go back to the common room and have this kind of celebration party, as Harry's fallen asleep, he's like, ah, oh, dragons, they weren't that bad, right? Like, it's, it's, he, he can't even go back to that space of sheer panic and terror and, you know, and the reality that he actually was physically wounded by these dragons. At the end, he's just like, no, actually, it wasn't that bad. I'm not vulnerable. I'm I'm okay. I'm strong, which is exactly the kind of story that Ron is telling him as well as part of this emotional reconciliation. Uh, yeah, I love that. I really hadn't picked up on on that of the expression of strength in the face of, like, feeling any kind of weakness whatsoever, even weakness that would make sense because you just fought a dragon. <laughs> like, it's okay right. <laughs> right. to recognize. And still has the wound, yeah. right? Yeah, that's yeah. right. Uh, yeah. I, do have to, I do have to point out, though, that as the two of them are um, sort of comforting each other, and I do, I do like what you said of, like, they're not even really listening to the content of their words. They're just trying to, like express feelings to each other however they can they do throw Hermione under the bus a little bit it's like okay the two of them are back together so now we're back to like throwing her under the bus Ron says something to her of uh of like oh right little ray of sunshine aren't you when she brings them back down to reality so that's just unfortunate that like they they aren't able to support each other without you know bringing Hermione down yeah I mean I think that Hermione is like just too much of a realist and maybe a literalist Mm. and too too smart in some ways to like accommodate this kind of dancing around the issue, right? Because that's why she got mad at them at the end of the last chapter. She's like, just 
just say it to each other. Like, why are you like, <laughs> right? And now she's just like, why are you, why are you doing it this way? Just like, let's just talk about what actually is and be in an honest space rather than go through all these motions of like trying to protect each other from any experience of vulnerability. Yeah. You know, the most obvious maybe moment in the chapter of vulnerability. So Harry has been given this egg, this dragon's egg, to conclude his task. And inside the egg is a clue or a hint to what the next task will be. So obviously he wants to open it. And obviously in the midst of the celebration with the Gryffindors, that's the time to open it, right? Uh, And he does. And there's this this kind of unholy sound that comes out of the egg. Jackson, do you want to say more about the scene, set the scene, and talk about where vulnerability is there? Yeah, yeah. So the the, the sound from the egg specifically sounds like screaming. Like, I think one of the yeah. Gryffindors describes it maybe like the sound of a banshee or something. But Neville... It says Neville, who had gone very white and spilled sausage rolls all over the floor, which there's so many little details in this chapter, like visually, that sometimes I miss when I read it. And then I read it again. I'm like, oh, my gosh, he just spilled sausage rolls everywhere. That's kind of funny. But uh, it's not a funny moment because Neville says it sounds like someone is being tortured and he thinks Harry is going to have to fight the Cruciatus curse. Um, and everyone immediately like writes Neville off because it just seems like, oh, Neville, the worry wart, like he's always paranoid about things. That's just what's happening. But, you know, those of us who have read the whole series, or I think even up to this point, we've seen, uh, correct me if, if I'm if I'm wrong, but in Defense Against the Dark Arts, have they been introduced to the curses yet? They have. Yeah, they've been introduced to the curses. The spider got the Cruciatus curse. Yeah. So so even, you know, at least his, his peers who were in that class with him might have an inkling of there's something more to the story here. So it's already like a little bit of a... I think as a reader, you you might be like, okay, there's there's something more going on here. This is a little concerning. But certainly once you have read the whole series and know the whole story, like on a reread, this just really hits me because, you know, Neville's parents were tortured with the Cruciatus curse. And so at age 14, I, I assume he's been given probably more details than maybe he ever wanted about this. And so to him, that was like an actual, like triggering, traumatizing sound to hear. Yeah. And we really get a sense yeah. of how deeply wounded he was understandably by uh, what happened to his parents that when he hears this scream, that is immediately where his mind goes. Yeah. And yeah, it's just a really, really tough moment to watch, especially because no one comforts him. No, no one is like, yep. oh yeah, we see that you're in pain. They're just like, oh, silly Neville. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we have like a, a hint of this earlier in the book when Mad-Eye Moody slash Barty Crouch Jr., inflicts this curse upon the spider, right? We know, I think it says that Neville goes pale and then Moody slash Barty Jr. like takes him aside afterwards. And he comes back to the Gryffindor common room in that situation seeming kind of taken care of. It seems like Moody slash Crouch takes him aside and either as a kind of act of confidence building or whatever, he like does offer some comfort to him. But in this space, you're right, there's there's nothing. Yeah. And in some ways it's it's more extreme, right? It's not it's not the actual Cruciatus curse being performed on a spider. Like in which case Neville knows it's a Cruciatus curse. You can see how his woundedness situates him to interpret a situation in a particular way. Mm-hmm. Right. Like when he hears a scream, what he sees is this this deep, deep wound in his psyche, the torture of his parents, right? And and that's another way to kind of approach this question of vulnerability. You know, we, I talked about the idea of vulnerability being derived from the Latin word for wound, and we were kind of speaking about it, and I think we'll continue speaking about it as, you know, entering a space where one might be hurt by another, right? But there's also the idea of just being wounded, mm-hmm. right? Like, if you are already wounded, if you're carrying a wound, like, like 
like Neville's carrying a wound, then people have the power to hurt you in ways they don't realize, right? In ways that they might not understand, or you might not even be able to understand. Like the, the other people in the room, it's a bad noise, but it doesn't immediately trigger this traumatic response. This is an open wound in, in Neville. And so he becomes vulnerable to a whole, you know, a whole set of circumstances that folks who don't have this history might not be vulnerable in the same way too. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm just thinking very literally on the metaphor of wound and how, you know, let's say you, you literally do, you have like a, a gash or something that you got on your arm. Yeah. Uh, and that can be, as it starts healing, it can be reopened, not by the exact same incident again, but by something else completely like unrelated, but it can reopen, like physically just like reopen the wound or to your example of like other people not experiencing the same thing. I don't know if someone spills some salt water on their arm and they don't have a wound, yeah. it's fine. Yeah. But if someone has an open gash That's on their right. arm and gets salt water spilt on it, that is going to burn. It's going to hurt really bad. I have a very yeah. literal mind. So that sort of like helps me think of things in that way of like, <laughs> yeah, for everyone else, it was like, it hurt their ears and it was confusing and maybe kind of funny. But for Neville, that was a very, very painful and scary moment. Like going back to that fear too, yeah. he's scared that his good friend that he cares about might have to undergo the same thing that hurt his parents. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that the way you describe that too is really useful because like what happens is like this is, or what we can see is that in Neville, this is close to the surface, right? Mm -hmm. Like this this hurt is close to the surface all the time. And of course it would be, why, why, why shouldn't it be? And so he can get hurt really easily and can imagine it happening to other people he cares about, like Harry, really easily. And that is a vulnerability for him. That is, it makes him vulnerable. It means that he's easily hurt in these circumstances. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. So after the Gryffindor common room, they get back to classes and then sort of the second half of this chapter, I, I think like fully big chunk of this chapter is going down to the kitchens for the first time and meeting the house elves there and seeing that Dobby has started working there a week ago and Winky is there too. And so we sort of get a catch up and uh, with Dobby and see what he's been up to since Chamber of Secrets. And I've got to be honest, in the uh, in the spirit of vulnerability, I am 
extremely uncomfortable with the whole house elf concept. It's just a whole lot of yikes. But I think that vulnerability might actually be a really good theme to discuss uh, house elves, especially with some of what you were saying at, at the top of the episode, Matt, about power. I think that is like the power structure thing is a really interesting one to examine in in these relationships that we're seeing with Dobby and Winky specifically kind of as outliers, but also just house elves in general. And I'm kind of curious more of your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I was talking about in response to your story was just how if vulnerability is about being able to be hurt by others, then those who have power over us can hurt us, right? And that's not just like in the immediate sense of like, I'm in a struggle or a fight with somebody else. It's also structural, right? Like structurally, some folks have more power than others. Um, And another way of putting that is that some folks are more vulnerable to the power of others than other folks, right? And we see that in such a dramatic and stark way with the house elves, right? And I think you're right. I mean, one of the things that's really kind of worrisome about the depiction of elves here is it's hard to know where the text is with this. We, mm-hmm. we know we have characters who believe it's in the elves' best interest to be slaves, right? Even beloved characters like Hagrid earlier in this book tell Hermione, oh, you'd be doing them a disservice. They love to, to do what they're doing, right? And, and we ought to and can condemn characters for that position. In chapters like this, where we see the house elves represented more directly, I get a little bit uncomfortable Mm-hmm. Right, because it's hard for me to know like how much the text thinks that's also true, how much yes. the text agrees with Hagrid's position, right? Because you have someone like Dobby who does appreciate his freedom and is happy to be getting paid, but Dumbledore tried to pay him 10 galleons and he's like, oh no, only one, because I don't want to get paid that much. Mm-hmm. And then you have all the other elves in the kitchen who think that Dobby is this like scandalous elf who would accept any kind of payment and who actually seemed to express exactly the sentiment in their own words that Hagrid expressed and other characters Ron and the Weasleys express, right? And that's bothersome because we know that folks can internalize their oppression, mm-hmm. but we also know that even folks who internalize their oppression have ways to resist and do mm-hmm. resist in really tangible and visible and meaningful ways. And that's that's harder to discern in the kitchen and it makes it makes me uncomfortable with the representations. Yeah, I I think that's a good way to put it. I I think what gets me in this chapter is it it is fully realistic that like within an oppressed population, not everyone would agree with the best way to resist. And like, I could totally see people not liking how Dobby's going about things for whatever reason, but for them all to like, not like what he's doing because they are just happy and content with their lot in life just seems very unrealistic to me. And the fact that that doesn't ever... Like, we don't get any opposing narrative to that, except within Hermione's kind of misled way of going about her first attempts at activism, and then Dobby as, like, an extreme example. And because we don't get anything more from the text ever, you are sort of led to believe, like, okay, this is maybe not... I don't know, you know, like, when you see something in in a text that uh, seems wrong... If it is corrected in some way by another character, like saying that this is wrong, then you can feel a little bit better about it. But yeah, the uh, the authorial intent here doesn't come across great to me. Yeah, that's right. And even with Dobby, right? Even with Dobby, who is free and says he wants to be paid, as I said, he takes the yeah insists on a pay cut when when Dumbledore offers him more. And then when he says something quote unquote bad, which is very mild actually about the Malfoys, right. something everybody already knows about the Malfoys. He starts abusing himself. He starts, like, inflicting wounds upon himself, right? And 
the, the way that structural violence is projected upon the characterization of these elves by the text is a troubling thing, right? And yeah. and especially as it seems like it's kind of played for humor, right? Yeah. Like it's the these are comic characters and we're supposed to find them a little bit comic, I think. But what hides underneath that is a little bit, I think, of a it seems like it's embracing that Hagrid Weasley position we don't like about, oh, the elves want this for themselves. Mm-hmm. And it seems like there would be more of an opportunity here to to show some resistance with these characters and to show some some resilience and resistance against these power structures. And that really is like a to me, that's a poor depiction of vulnerability, of what it means to be vulnerable, what it means to be vulnerable to structural violence, right? I think that there are better ways that the text might do that. And I think it's important for us to flag that as we as we read it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and thinking on on the, the power structures and stuff, I think what really comes across to me is that all of the house elves, Dobby and Winky included, all of them are absolutely acting out of fear. Like, you know, when when they're like rushing around to 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 get food yeah. to Harry Ron and Hermione and just like doing everything and all the ways that even when they look down on Winky and Dobby for anything that they're doing that doesn't seem uh, like the right thing for a house elf to do, like to me that is all out of fear for what they have been told and what has been done to them their whole lives. Like they are like, they want to do everything right because they know what happens if they don't. Yeah, it's really hard to read the way they harm themselves in yeah. the context of all that. It's hard to think about how that's meant to operate. But one of the things about resistance is that when we see oppressed populations, there are always movements and moments of resistance, right? Mm-hmm. And the text even suggests some here and maybe is hinting at some things in the future, although it doesn't fully realize them in this chapter. As I said, I think this representation is fairly flat. But the elves do have power over wizards. I mean, we'll learn this later on because there's powerful elf magic that we'll see described and demonstrated to us later on in the series. But even here, like, there's information, right? Winky has information that if she revealed it, could actually spare some suffering to to wizards, right? The perpetual flaw of the wizards is not realizing how vulnerable they are to other magical populations, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, one of the things about Dobby and Winky is that both of them have worked for Death Eaters. Winky has this information. Winky knows what's going on with Barty Crouch Sr. and Barty Crouch Jr., but Winky won't say anything. And that is like this information itself is like a kind of power that she could use to help other wizards, but the other wizards don't realize how vulnerable they are to this kind of withheld information. Yeah. I mean, I think there might be a a little bit I mean, at least Barty Crouch Sr., I think, understands <laughs> um, that yeah. vulnerability because of uh, how, you know, strict he was on Winky and, and wanting to make sure that she didn't ever reveal that information. You know, I, I think we kind of see someone like Lucius Malfoy in Chamber of Secrets not realizing uh, the extent to which Dobby yeah. would be willing to yeah. use that little bit of of power he is able to have. But I, I think part of the reason that wizards like historically did oppress and enact violence on house elves is because they were maybe aware of that a little bit. Certainly, as we kind of learn later, aware that elves have a lot of their own magical power. And so having to, to, to beat them down at least yeah. enough that they wouldn't use that power against the wizards, I think definitely comes out. I think a lot about Hermione 
in Goblet of Fire, learning more about house elves and how sometimes you have to have that outside perspective of someone who like did not grow up with this as a norm to sort of like yeah. realize it. And and also thinking both her and the experience of, of the readers of the books the first time is like we the first time we meet a house elf is through the Malfoys. Then we meet one through the Crouch family. And even though we don't know all the dark secrets of the Crouch family at first, it's still like a wealthy, pure blood family. Right. And so we can think, oh, yeah. it's those yeah. kinds of people people who have house elves and that, you know, we already know that they're evil. But then when you find out that Hogwarts, Dumbledore has just like hundreds of house elves, and then you find out via Dobby's story that they're not being paid. Like, I like, I don't know. That was just always, that was really tough for me to like a tough pill for me to swallow to be like, wait, but at Hogwarts, I thought people were treated better. Like, and if Dumbledore is clearly willing to offer payment to Dobby, why isn't he paying all of the house elves? Yeah. Or even just the depiction of like, oh, it's so much better for house elves here. Like all of them want to work at Hogwarts, which I'm sure is true to a certain extent, but is also like, but it's still, you're still enslaved at Hogwarts. Yeah, I think that's great. I think it's that's really important. Uh, and I think it absolutely fits in with this theme of vulnerability, at least insofar as we're thinking about power and how power moves and where it hides and where it acts. Because you're right. I mean, that the families that we see, like, having house elves are rich Death Eater families, right? Like, like Malfoy, Crouch, mm-hmm. um, the Black family, right? When we meet Creature later on, right? Like, these are families which, like, yeah, seem to yeah, relish yeah. the idea of having a magical creature who is their slave, right? But then, like, the Hogwarts becomes this, this hint of how this kind of power structure, how this kind of structural violence hides everywhere in this mm. culture, right? It's it's most obvious in the households of these wealthy Death Eater wizards and witches, but it's also present in a hidden way in the structures that uphold the whole the whole culture, right? Hogwarts is like where wizards get educated and the whole thing almost literally sits upon the labor of house elves who are in the basement doing all the work, right? It starts becoming obvious, I think, especially as someone who read these as a young person for the first time. I didn't pick up on other things that maybe adults did in the first few books, but Goblet of Fire is sort of the turning point where we start realizing, like, oh, Dumbledore is not perfect. Hogwarts is not perfect. It's it's not impenetrable. And Dumbledore is not perfect in terms of, like, values, like, you know, and I think the house elves are one of the first indications of that. And so seeing uh, Hogwarts and Dumbledore as having some vulnerabilities, both in this larger, you know, magical war that is oncoming, but also yep. just in terms of like a moral compass. Yeah, that's right. Like moral vulnerabilities, right? Yes. Yeah. 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 I'm also interested in this like idea of like, if vulnerability is related to the concept of power, then we have this question of where power hides, right? Like what you have when you have an oppressed population is their power is hidden, sometimes from themselves, sometimes it's suppressed or whatever. One of the ways that elves have power, but you know, aren't able to use it or don't choose to use it now is in the information they have, right? Mm-hmm. But that. I just want to turn to one other moment in the chapter where, like, we see, like, kind of hidden power or power that's not, or people exerting power, but maybe not everybody realizing it's going on. So Harry and Hermione and Ron go with the other students down to Hagrid's hut for care of magical creatures, and the scroots are being dangerous, and a lot of the students are hiding in the hut. But Harry and Ron and Hermione are outside because they're loyal to Hagrid. 
And because they're loyal to Hagrid, when Rita Skeeter comes by and starts asking questions, they get worried for Hagrid Mm -hmm. because they know she's the kind of journalist she is. They know that this could be dangerous for Hagrid because he's maybe doing a dangerous thing with his students. And so they immediately try to protect him. You can see them kind of rallying around Hagrid and trying to protect him, you know, questioning whether he should be doing this article, wondering and worrying about what the article will be and what Rita Skeeter's intentions are. But Hagrid's just oblivious. He's like, sure, I'll do an interview, right? He doesn't actually realize the power that someone like Rita Skeeter might have over him if she writes the kind of story she's inclined to write. And so, like, one of the things that can make us vulnerable also is not realizing the power that others have over us, not realizing what they could do to harm us or what they could do to, to hurt us. That's absolutely what's going on with the wizards, basically, the Wizarding World, basically, and the Ministry of Magic, basically, from this book through the end of book seven, <laughs> yes. not realizing where we're vulnerable is how folks exert power over us. It's also the way that somebody like Barty Crouch Jr. is able to, to be so successful in this book because it's everyone not realizing the power that he has and what he's doing that allows him to to actually take the actions that he does. And he makes this whole community vulnerable to him because he's able to trick them into thinking that he's not who he th- says he is. Yeah, not seeing where that that power may lie is a really, yeah. really interesting point. It sort of hit me that the Hagrid-Rita Skeeter interaction and, and Harry and Hermione recognizing the, the power that Rita has uh, and the ways that she might wield that, that Hagrid might not be as savvy to, even if he has some instincts about like, yeah. mm, I don't really like her. Like he knows Dumbledore said she wasn't supposed to be around. But he still sort of gets lured in because she talks about it in a way that seems safe to him and of his interest. She's like, oh, we've got the zoology column or whatever. That yeah. reminds me a lot of when I've had maybe like some some older relatives who get onto social media for the first time and they get lured in by like, yeah. uh, you know, they, they find a lot of like posts and stuff of, of things that are of their interest. But then they sort of start going down this rabbit hole because of all the ways that social media, you know, just like yeah. recommends other things to you. And then slowly yep. they like they start getting followers and there's like strangers talking to them and they they sort of think of them as more real people than these maybe bots or maybe bad actors actually are. And it, I, I feel a lot of what I think Harry and Hermione were feeling there of like, they know about the quick quotes quill. They have seen what Rita has done. And they also have this more outside perspective on some of Hagrid's vulnerabilities, you know, his, he, him wanting to talk in defense of animals and like when he maybe has yeah. a couple of drinks. Uh, and yeah, just sort of that, <laughs> that protection. And I don't know, like young people like trying to get the person who is less familiar with like this technology or this new world to like understand what their vulnerabilities are but not really having a way to tell them in a way that they understand because we leave this chapter and like the interview hasn't happened yet. It's going to happen. They scheduled it, but Harry and Hermione didn't make any kind of plan to be like, all right, well, we got to go talk to Hagrid later today to explain this to him. They're just like, well, that's going to happen now. And that's unfortunate. Yeah, Yeah, right. Yeah. But yeah, Yeah. it's just that, that connection of, of like sometimes people can see the vulnerability in someone else and sort of like their weak point to someone, but it's tough to then I have a vulnerable discussion about that, I guess, and and yeah. figure out how yeah. to protect them. Yeah, because because they've been through it, right? Harry and Hermione have already had a story, an unfounded story written about all them. of Prisoner of Azkaban. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, and so now, like, they just just they suspect her, but you're right. They also are just kind of just hoping for the best and hoping it doesn't work out that way for for Hagrid. So now we're going to do our spiritual 
reading practice for the week, and we are continuing our practice Florilegia. Florilegia is a practice that, uh, as our many of our regular listeners know, that begins in medieval Europe, where uh, monastics would select a line that sparkled up out of a text to them. We call them sparklets, and then would read those lines next to each other. So I've chosen a line, and Jackson has chosen a line, and we'll read our lines and talk about them a little bit, and then we'll put them together and see what comes about. Jackson, you want to give your your line first? Sure. Percy wouldn't recognize a joke if it danced naked in front of him wearing Dobby's tea cozy. (laughs) So tell me where this line comes in the chapter and why you chose it. It might be the very last line of the chapter. It's it's towards the end because someone's like, oh, don't let Percy hear you saying something bad about Ludo Bagman or something bad about the government. And then uh, I think about Barney Crouch Sr. And Ron's like, Percy wouldn't recognize a joke if it danced naked in front of him wearing Dobby's tea cozy. But I specifically chose it because I remember reading this when I was growing up and I did not understand this sentence at all. I think, first of all, as an American (laughs) reader, I didn't know what a tea cozy was. Um, And for any of our other non-English listeners who have never looked it up, it's like this sort of cloth covering that you put over the the teapot to just kind of keep it warm or make it look nice. And so roughly the size of a house elf's head. That's why Dobby wears one on as a hat, I suppose. (laughs) Um, But I think I also didn't understand the sentence structure of like not recognizing a joke if it danced naked in front of him. Just this line has forever tripped me up. And so that's why it it sparkled out to me because I finally kind of get it, but it's still just such a weird sentence to me. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, it leans leans upon this like, this kind of classic insult, right? But if you're not familiar with that, then yeah, then it it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't scan. Yeah, yeah. All yeah. right. Well, what's your line? So yeah, the line I chose was this. Just then, Neville caused a slight diversion by turning into a large canary. <laughs> so this is during. It's funny. We both kind of we both chose sort of slapstick lines from the text this time. So this line happens when they're in the Gryffindor common room after. Harry, Ron, and Hermione have sent the the letter to Sirius. They go back to the common room. There's a big party. We discuss the moment when Neville is sort of re-traumatized, when mm-hmm. he, he hears this scream coming out of the egg and immediately thinks about the Cruciatus curse and, by extension, his, his parents and voices this to the room, right? And so he's in this kind of very vulnerable state. He has this wound that he has has been opened. And he starts eating a, uh, a custard cream, which is like a, I think for our American listeners, like a little sandwich cookie. And Fred and George make a joke that it's gonna that's gonna have some kind of effect upon them because they're always playing pranks. And then they say, just kidding, and he keeps eating them. And what we learn is that they are saying, oh, actually, they were playing a prank on him, and he turns into a large canary. And this is just after they kind of get the egg closed and people are kind of moving on and trying to figure out what it means. He causes a diversion by turning into a large canary. And, a, you know, a minute later, he sheds all his feathers, he molts, it says, and then he's back to himself. Yes. And then he laughs, and he's happy. And, and that moment was like 11 that kind of maybe brought mm. him out of where he was, or at least that's how it outwardly shows. The text seems to describe him as, as laughing along with everyone else at the end. But there's something about this dynamic, like in this profoundly vulnerable state, that that, that this is the reason I selected the line, because it is funny, and I found it funny when I read it, but that upon further analysis, I thought about, oh, I don't, I don't know how good I feel about finding it funny because, because Neville's in this profoundly vulnerable state. He's just been rewounded. And then, you know, salt in the wound, he gets kind of teased in the common room as he always is teased in the common room. He's the one who gets, who's the object of laughter, the object of everyone's kind of derision. And then he sheds all, he molts all the feathers. And because he, I think in general, Neville's got a pretty good sense of humor, he laughs along with it. But I, 
as I reflected more, I'm like, boy, he's still hurting. I wonder if this, how this felt to him to have this prank pulled on him right in that moment. Did it feel like he was being pulled into a community? Maybe. Did it feel like he was being ostracized more and set apart more? Maybe. Maybe some of both. You know, I, I, I don't know. But anyway, that's why, that's why I chose the line. Yeah, I, I think that's such a great point because one reason this line stood out to me is because throughout the books, and this chapter is heavy with it, there are quick lines like this that you can easily skip over, especially in dialogue-heavy chapters like this. You just want to keep going with the yeah. dialogue. But like that's a huge yeah. background visual that you miss if you missed that sentence, yeah. right? Yeah. And so on the one hand, it's like, oh, you're yeah. missing so much of the humor if you sort of like skim through these books because little lines like that, like you blink and you miss it, and it's a huge yeah. thing that happened. But then you're right, it is sort of a tonal shift as well of like if you are just yeah. focusing on the dialogue, there's a lot, there is a lot of vulnerability happening in the common room there. And so it's it's almost a little bit about what you were getting with the house elves of how, especially in this chapter, it feels like they're played as this pastiche. There's maybe a lack of connection happening between these, like, what it seems like the text wants us to think are kind of funny moments. But what actually, when you put it in context of everything else that's going on and everyone else's emotional states, maybe aren't that funny or really like genuinely are not that funny in the case of the house elves, but something like this, even though Neville laughed it off, like, uh, yes, even if he's been transformed a lot, as we know he has, that's still gotta be a little bit of a (laughs) disconcerting experience to be a canary all of a sudden. Yeah. Especially in the wake of what he's, what has just happened Mm -hmm, to him, right? mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, let's put the sentences together and see what we find. So I'll read them both, and I'll read yours first. Percy wouldn't recognize a joke if it danced naked in front of him wearing Dobby's tea cozy. Just then, Neville caused a slight diversion by turning into a large canary. Well, I think it's really funny in this order, because it feels like we're saying, <laughs> Percy wouldn't recognize a joke, and now here is a joke. That's right. You know, of, That's right. And like the, the, the most in-your-face, like even more than a joke dancing naked in front of him wearing a tea cozy, is someone turning into a human-sized canary right in front of you. How's that for a joke? Yeah. It almost looks like a watch this. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. like I'll prove to you that Percy couldn't recognize a joke <laughs> if it danced naked in front of him. Here is a large canary dancing in front of him. <laughs> and, and he still doesn't recognize the joke. But I yeah. think there is that darker edge to it, right? Because everything we were just saying about this joke, like, is it a joke? Right? Like, right. like when we recognize a joke, what are we not recognizing? Right? I think that... Percy can't recognize a joke because he's humorless in in ways that the that the books create some humor around. But sometimes finding humor means that you are not looking at something else. And yeah, my ex- experience of reading that original line was to find humor in it until I thought about vulnerability in this chapter and thought about what Neville was going through. And then I was like, oh, maybe this isn't a joke. Maybe I recognize it as a joke too early. Well, and and I do think you know. Percy and Hermione are two of the people who often are painted as not being able to take a joke. And and you sort of alluded to this earlier uh, today of Hermione is very practical. And there have been a number of times like in the common room throughout the series where we see Hermione and Percy helping out Neville while everyone else is laughing. And so maybe the fact that Percy wouldn't recognize that as a joke is good because he'd be the only one going to help Neville out. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Actually, yeah. Yeah. Okay, let's put them in the other order and see if anything else emerges. Okay. Just then, Neville caused a slight diversion by turning into a large canary. Percy wouldn't recognize a joke if it danced naked in front of him wearing Dobby's tea cozy. So in this time, what kind of came out to me was uh, as, as if Neville had more agency in this. Of like, here's two, like, Neville's trying something, Percy's trying something. Like, maybe they were both tasked with comedy. And Neville was like, well, I'm going to do something big. I'm going to turn into a canary. And then Percy just, like, 
can't even understand what, what a joke is. I don't know. Yeah, something. It was more like each of them doing something when it's in this order. Yeah. Yeah, I had a, I, I had a different experience hearing it this way. It almost seems like, I mean, I still had the speaker as Ron, mm. I think, here. But it, it's almost like here it seems like Neville is trying to get attention, trying to get attention from Ron, right? But Ron, even though there's a diversion, his focus is on something else that's going on, right? And mm. so, like, all that Neville does to try to get the attention of others in the common room, or especially these central characters, Ron, Harry, and Hermione, it never quite takes, right? Until maybe, like, the last book, even, like, the last scenes of the last book, it never quite takes. He's always kind of marginal to them, even though he might have been central. He might have been a foursome instead of a threesome, right? Like, he always is, like, a little bit outside. And even when he's doing the outlandish thing to try to get their attention, they don't see it. Yeah. And that's happening in, in this chapter as well, because he does the thing. He says, it's the Cruciatus curse. He's actually speaking his truth of his trauma to them. And they don't see it, right? Nobody sees it. They see him as a joke still, which kind of turns back to that original meaning of, like, where do you see jokes and where do you don't? And when you see a joke, what are you not seeing? Well, and, and what you were saying earlier of, like, people not seeing power where it lies. Yeah. And, and as we find out, yeah. Neville has so much power and, and so much ability to yeah. help people and stand up and, and to use a lot of that fear yeah. uh, and that care that he has for people we were talking about earlier and turn that into fighting for them and being yeah. one, of, one of the biggest heroes by the end of the series. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So thanks. These were, these, as I said, these were kind of slapstick lines, but I think we yeah. got to some pretty deep places, especially with, with Neville with these. I'd like to argue that in in support of slapstick overall, I'm a big slapstick fan, and and now I want to try to make some argument of like you can always find the deeper meaning in it. It's not just silly. That's right. That's good. That's good. <laughs> Thanks, Jax. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just five dollars. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Now we have a voice memo from Kate. Hello, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text team. My name is Kate, and I am a longtime Harry Potter fan, so I love your podcast. Today, I would like to offer a blessing to Professor Trelawney. Throughout the series, she is seen as a fraud and a joke, and divination is seen as a subject where students can slack off um, when they don't want to do harder work. And 
this really bothers me as a theater kid and as a lover of the arts and humanities. Um, throughout high school and throughout my time with the arts, I have seen myself grow in love and in empathy um, and in kindness towards others. It has allowed me to expand my mind as I've been presented with situations that I otherwise wouldn't encounter in my life. I've seen it do a lot of good in my life and in the life of my friends and in larger circumstances as well. There's a huge problem in our society of pushing STEM fields as being more legitimate and more important than the arts and the humanities. Um, and I think that's wrong. I think that we need to recognize that art has a place and art has a value and art is important. And so I would like to offer a blessing to Professor Trelawney, to Lavender, Pavardi, and all of the other arts kids out there who may feel undervalued and underappreciated and who may feel that they are not doing something that's as important as other people. Um, I love you. I see you. And I think that the work you're doing is amazing. So thank you. Kate, you are preaching to the converted here at Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. And, and also to myself as a, you know, as a humanities professor at a university, like the humanities are just being crowded out and in many ways are dying. And I think it's a real shame and a tragedy because, I mean, STEM fields are important. We need this kind of research, but we also need to ask hard questions about like what justice is and what it means to live a good life and to treat each other justly and to treat each other well. And those questions are ones that arise out of the arts and the humanities. And the arts and the humanities are the things that invite us into these hard conversations. And I think this podcast and the conversation I've been having with Jackson is like an example of that, if I may be so bold, like... We just spent, you know, 45 minutes talking about vulnerability, what it means, how it lives in our bodies, what it, how it affects power and, and what it means to do right and to do good based upon all that. And those are essential, essential conversations. I'm grateful to have them whenever I can have them, when I can have them with Jackson, when I can have them by extension with you, Kate, and with our whole Harry Potter and the Sacred Text community. So thanks for listening and thanks for your support of the arts and humanities. Yeah, here, here. And I do have to say, I, on every reread, as I get older, I do have more sympathy for Professor Trelawney as well. And especially just seeing that, you know, the narratively, her predictions are often usually right in some capacity, just like Ron's yeah. jokes are almost always true. <laughs> <laughs> Now's the time in the episode when we remember those in our community who have been loved and lost. Dick Sipola, 82, the best husband, father, and grandpa, who was devoted to faith, family, food, and laughter. Ercilia Colantonio, 92, a patient and loving Nona who loved to dance. Betsy Hall Wallace, 72, a mother wife, Scottish dancer, and friend. Deborah, 69, a beloved mother, teacher, and quilter. Ivy, 44, a sister and friend who is irreplaceable and will be missed forever. Let light perpetual shine upon all of them.
Jackson, it's time for blessings. Who are you blessing this week? I decided I want to bless Dean Thomas because at the start when we have the quote unquote surprise party that Ron ruins in the Gryffindor common room, uh, we get a quick note that Dean had drawn a whole bunch of pictures on banners uh, recounting the first task of Harry's successes and Cedric's head on fire. And I just love that in Goblet of Fire, we start getting these little peeks at a lot of the background characters and how they are coming into their own and, and finding themselves and expressing themselves in new ways as they grow up. And we learn throughout the series that Dean is a really good artist and and we get more peeks at this throughout the series. Yeah. Um, but sort of what you were saying of, you know, Neville is always just on the side and people aren't recognizing him. I love seeing what some of the other side background characters are doing. And, you know, Dean's a good artist and good for him. I love that. And I just want to send a little blessing to Dean and his artwork. Yeah, Jackson, that's great. I mean, I I noticed that line with Dean and it made me really excited for Dean and made me wish I could see actually all the things that that he had drawn for the party. So this week, I'm going to bless Winky. I mean, Winky is obviously distraught and distressed and in a really difficult space. I mean, moving and be, like leaving your home is always traumatizing. Coming into a transition to a new space is always traumatizing and difficult and challenging. Transition is hard, right? But Winky also is holding on to so much inside. She knows what's going on. She knows she has to keep it in. She knows about all the violence that's around her. She She's carrying too much, and you can see it. You know, you talked about vulnerability as manifesting physiologically. Like, that's one thing that we really see with the house elves, even if it's played for laughs in a way that we ought to problematize, and we did in this in this chapter. Winky's really suffering and in distress because of the secret she has to keep, because of the structural violence under which she lives, because of the the immediate physical violence that she's suffered. And so, I just want to I just want to bless her because she's going through a lot, and wish better things for Winky and all those who suffer the same. Yeah. Next week, we're going to be reading Book 4, Chapter 22, The Unexpected Task, with the hosts of the wonderful podcast, which please, Hannah McGregor and Marcel Cosman, and we're going to be reading that chapter with them through the theme of ceremony. Just a few reminders before we give our thanks this week. Remember, as we said at the top of the episode, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is going to camp, and people like Jackson Bird are going to be there. And yeah. uh, Vanessa Zoltan and all your favorites from the, all, the whole Not Sorry gang are going to be at camp. It's June 9th through 11th, and you can sign up at NotSorryWorks.com. Also remember that you can get ad-free episodes of our podcasts if you subscribe through Apple Podcasts. This has been a Not Sorry production, and Not Sorry Productions is a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. Our engineer is Malika Gumpankum. We're edited and produced by AJ Yaramaz. Our music is by Ivan Paisal and Nick Bull, and we are distributed by Acast. Thanks this week to Kate, who left their voicemail for us, to Laura Glass, Julia Argy, Margaret H. Willison, Nikki Zoltan, Hannah Rehack, Courtney Brown, Casper Takile, Steffi Paul Sell, and especially to Jackson Bird and to all of you who sent in the names of those you have loved and lost this week. Harry, Ron, and Hermione went up to the Owlery. Owlery? (laughs) Sorry. Harry, Ron, and Hermione went up. We'll try again.